Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. Hey, hey, welcome back. I want to start off by saying thank you for being here, but also I'm not so sure that I have ever been this excited for a podcast, and I do a lot of podcasts, whether it be for obviously the one I'm doing now, Hanu Health, which is our podcast, but also as a guest on other podcasts. I just am really pumped about the information that I'm going to give you today. And the reason being is because I've been doing a lot of self-exploration lately. A lot of challenges have come my way, obstacles or what seemed like barriers or blockades, and I've been just doing a lot of soul searching. And one of the things that I have come across in my own level of journey and self-exploration has been this concept of authenticity and sticking true or staying true at least to who I am as a human being, who I am both personally and professionally and spiritually and relationally and academically and all these things, I've just been doing a lot of self-exploration. And so I'm really excited to share with you some thoughts and ideas today regarding that self-exploration, but more so along the lines of behavior change and what it means to truly enact or engage in behavioral change. Before we jump into today's content, I do want to remind everybody that we're still taking pre-orders. And not only are we taking pre-orders, but I'm going to give you an exclusive podcast discount because you're one of the faithful. A lot of our podcast listeners, the the faithful ones have already pre-ordered. But if you haven't, if you have not pulled the trigger just yet, well, we have some things that are going to sweeten the deal that's already there. The deal that's already there is that, hey, you're number one in line to get the amazing device that is Hanu. It is a full out platform that is intended to be a mechanism to regulate your stress response and also measure changes in your stress response. I usually like to flip flop those. We provide you valuable insights as to how there are or are not changes in your stress response or changes in the autonomic nervous system and then provide you with mechanisms for self-regulation via biofeedback, breath work, meditation exercises, and plenty of other amazing, valuable assessments and exercises. And we're going to give it to you for the low, low price of $180 for the device and your first year of membership. That's 40% off of retail, which is $299. Again, you're going to get it for 180 bucks. Like the value behind that is something that we are never going to give again. And you have the opportunity to do it. Just go on to hanuhealth.com. That's H-A-N-U health.com. Use coupon code POD40. That's P-O-D, like the band, P-O-D-40. And that's going to get you this $300 device for the low, low price of 180 bucks. And I think that you are going to be so immensely surprised and hopefully impressed with the amazingly valuable insights, maybe invaluable insights that you get from this device. And man, we have been working diligently on this thing and you should just see the amount of updates that we've made. So if you have been following us for a long time, you've kind of already seen the evolution of what the app looks like. We have some stuff that is headed your way that is going to be mind blowing and is a game changer, like truly a game changer in terms of insight and direction and data visualization and making all of this data actionable so that you can build the most resilient nervous system that you possibly can. And it's done with Hanu. We are such an amazing stressed monitor and stress coach that you can use all throughout your day. 
to make you a more resilient individual to all of life's crazy stressors. And again, stress isn't bad, but your ability to control your nervous system, that's the strength and component that we bring in Hanu. So again, head on over to hanuhealth.com and pre-order using code POD40 for 40% off. Okay, let's jump into today's content, which is going to be a solo sewed with me. The one thing that I have reminded myself through this self-exploration period that I've taken, and, and I'll be the first to say too that it wasn't even necessarily myself who reminded me of this. It was actually my wife. So Hannah, if you're listening to this, um, I credit you uh, almost solely for reminding me of this. And the reminder is going to sound a little bit funny, um, but I'm going to explain it a little bit and then we're going to jump into today's content. Uh, This is obviously very directly related to the content. But the one thing that I was reminded of is I'm a psychologist. So I went to school for a really long time to become a psychologist. And at heart, I hold a license here in the great state of South Carolina as a psychologist. I practice as a clinical psychologist. I am a certified, board certified psychologist in biofeedback and heart rate variability biofeedback. And uh, that may be something you already know, but I actually needed to be reminded of that. And that is my lane. And it's not saying that we can't departure from our lane, but sometimes we have to take a little bit of a gut check. And for me, I was thinking about Hanu. I was thinking about what we're doing. I was thinking about our mission and I was thinking about my role as a co-founder and the chief scientific officer. And when it came down to it, I was like, you know, with a podcast, with a lot of the engagements that I'm having with a lot of the focus, yeah, it's on health and wellness. But the one thing that I know and that I'm really good at is psychology and behavioral change and action and core beliefs and cognition and the integration of psychology and physiology. And uh, that's just something that I feel like I've drifted away from in terms of the content that I provide you all. And it's been very much health and wellness oriented, which isn't bad and very interconnected with my passion and my drive. But for me, I'm also thinking like the one thing that I, I feel like you as the listener could really benefit from is something a little bit different. And it isn't me saying that we're going to change the entire landscape or tune of what we do here at Hanu. But when we think about it, Hanu is really focused on mental health and well-being. And what's great about that is that it is an area that doesn't have a lot of emphasis, especially in the wearable tech space and the health technology space. There are companies who are emphasizing it, but for us, uh, you know, we, that's my specialty and I co-founded the company. And so I really want to focus on that. But one aspect, and this is what today is going to be all about is, is behavior change. And when we talk about behavior change, we're talking about the actual action and implementation of changing one's behaviors. The thing is, is that we can have all of the education in the world. We can have all of the knowledge in the world and it's accessible to you right now. I mean, you can listen to podcasts, you can read books, uh, you can go to school. Like you have all of this education in regards to the things that we quote unquote should be doing. But then when it actually comes to the rubber hitting the road, that's where we find some problems, whether it's for us personally or for it's those that we're coaching or it's those that are our patients or clients, behavior change is really hard. And the one thing that I really want to point out today is that education is important, but it is meaningless without action. And I know that sounds a little bit like a hyperbole, but I think it's true. So today I want to talk about the actionable things that we can do to ensure the success of behavior change. But let me start this off with a caveat. Behavior change is freaking hard. It is really, really difficult. That's because when it comes down to it, there are a lot of things internally or externally that can try and act like barriers or blockades. But the one thing that I'm going to preach to you and that has been a valuable part of my journey right now is that it is time for us to stop making excuses. It is time for us to stop placing blame. 
And it is time for us to take ownership for the things that are causing us problems in our life that are well within our control. There are going to be some things in our life that are really out of our control. But one thing that we know is purely within our control is our response and behavior change is a response. So I don't want you to take all the time in the world, you know, spending hours and hours and hours listening to podcasts and reading books and diving into the literature. If we're not being authentic, if we're not taking ownership, if we're making excuses, placing blame and not actually putting what we're learning into action. Education is important, but it is meaningless without action when we talk about behavior change. Here's what we're going to talk about today in today's discussion. We're going to talk about the difficulty of change and the how crazy difficult behavior change is. We're going to talk about the stages of change. So there's going to be a little bit of an education and the purpose of talking about the stages of change is for us to do our own level of self-assessment. And then if, especially if you're a coach, if you're a clinician, if you're anyone who's helping others to be able to also explore the stages of change with your clientele, we're going to talk about mindset and more so a mindset of action. We'll talk about these concepts related to fix and growth mindset. And then I think this is where the rubber hits the road. We're going to talk about action steps for implementation and developing better habits. So what are the things that you can do? What are our rules of thumb? I'm going to give multiple rules for behavior change because again, when it comes down to actually engaging in things that are healthy for us, both for the mind, body, and spirit, you can learn about it all you want, but if you're not actually doing anything about it, or if you find that your attempts at implementing are falling short, well, it's probably time to do something else. It's probably time to enact different behavior. So we're going to talk about the behavioral components. I want to first speak to the heart. And when I speak to the heart, I want to talk about my life and my challenges, because guess what? I've already mentioned and made it clear that I'm a psychologist. So if you don't know now, um, know that I'm a psychologist, um, you know, I, and I spent a long time doing that. I went uh, and did four years. Uh, I did my bachelor's of science in psychology. Um, I did two years for a master's. A master's was in uh, clinical counseling. And then I did another five years of school, which was another master's in clinical psychology and uh, my doctoral degree in clinical psychology. And uh, the five years was an APA accredited psychology program where I also did um, uh, externships or practicums. I did internships and then I did a postdoctoral fellowship in health psychology. And so a lot of training, a lot of effort went into this. And guess what? The reason I tell you that isn't to pat myself on the back for accolades, but it's to tell you that someone who is a licensed psychologist, someone who is a quote unquote professional and expert in behavioral change, I have had and continue, I continue to have problems and difficulties with enacting behavioral change change. Just because I'm a professional and an expert and a psychologist in this area doesn't mean that I cannot succumb to temptation, succumb to challenges, and have difficulty with enacting even small behavioral habits. But I have utilized some really specific strategies for both myself and others in order to better overcome Some of the things that I have been challenged with in regards to health and wellness. Guess what? I'm human, which therefore makes me fallible. You are human, which makes you fallible. You are not perfect and you never will be perfect. I hope this is not the come to Jesus moment for you, but if it is good, I'm glad (laughs) that I could be the one to tell you you're not perfect and you never will be. But that doesn't mean that you cannot strive to live a life that is meaningful, has purpose, and brings you and your tribe and your community value and intention. And so that's where I'd like to start here. Here's my challenges. Guess what? Yes, you probably know me as someone who has been in the health and wellness scene for a while, talks a lot about nutrition and exercise and focus and happiness and joy and living a life 
that does not allow stress to control me. But does that mean that I have everything perfect? Well, I've already told you that the answer is no there, but I've had specific really hard and difficult challenges that I have worked through and some that still continue to rear their ugly head. One of my biggest demons all throughout my life has been food and has been poor food choices. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. So growing up, um, uh, not because of my parents' faults, because of their, you know, lack of whatever, or I guess I should say disregard for good quality food. I didn't eat well. Um, uh, I came from, you know, a pretty, a fairly affluent family who could afford really good food. Um, but what we chose to do, I think that's an okay way of saying it is that we ate a lot of fast food and we ate a lot of junk food. And I ate a lot of candy, a lot of sweets, and a lot of just poor, processed, highly sugared, really bad fat food. And this was something that carried over into my college years and even beyond. If I had the opportunity to eat food that wasn't so great for me, I would do it. It offered as a great distraction. It was a great way to ease anxiety. It can still be a great distraction, a way to ease anxiety, but it's all temporary and it all leads to really poor or bad outcomes every single time. But it's been my challenge and it continues to be a challenge at times. However, I have implemented a lot of things that have helped me a lot in regards to poor food choices. Uh, you know, I used to be somebody who would closet eat and would eat things that were really bad away from others, but pretend like I had things all together in terms of mental wellness and food. Uh, when in the back, you know, I was eating Doritos and munching on Oreos and, you know, eating whatever. There was a story, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm allowing myself to share a little bit of my heart. There's a story when I first got married and it was in uh, graduate school. My wife and I were trying to eliminate some of the poor food choices that we were making where I bought a bag of Doritos and I was like literally like eating them in the closet and stuffed them in a backpack so that my wife like wouldn't find them. You can see kind of the guilt and shame that's kind of tied with this type of behavior. But I knew it was something that was basically against the commitment that my wife and I were making. And uh, lo and behold, this is how fate happens, right? Um, and this is why we should embrace and love fate is that my wife found the bag. Uh, and she basically was like, what is this? And I mean, what am I you know, supposed to do? Make up a lie and say that a leprechaun jumped in my closet and stuffed the uh, <laughs> Doritos in the bag in an effort to sabotage me in my marriage? No, like I made the choice and I had to own it. And uh, to my recollection, she may correct me on this. I did not place any blame on anything else. I did not try to lie or make excuses. I owned it. Um, and it was a wake up call for me. It was one of those come to Jesus moments and I needed it. And, you know, it wasn't like I was being a glutton and going out and, uh, you know, say ordering 15 pizzas and like, you know, just kind of going out and doing all, all, all these types of things, um, which kind of sounds like an excuse. So I need to shut up. Uh, but I was doing something that was directly um, against kind of the commitment that I was I had made. And it was difficult for me. And those things are still challenging for me as much as I want to provide this image that I've got it all together in terms of food choices and exercises. Like I make poor choices at times. Another one for me is distraction. Like I've always been told by people that I can be easily distracted by things. And some people have even turned this as ADHD. And I have always fought against that uh, because as someone who's a clinician, I've seen ADHD. I know exactly what it looks like, but sometimes it's really hard for us to be objective with ourselves. And we need that outside bystander, that objective individual who can look from the outside in to give us that feedback. And I was pretty resistant to that feedback, but I finally, after a long time came to the conclusion that I'm easily distracted. You know what I call it? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I don't know, maybe probably not, uh, but maybe, but it's enough that it does impair my functionality at times. And guess what? I have implemented a lot of things to help with, with distractibility, but I still become distracted. I still find it impairing 
performance, I still see it impacting overall mental health and well-being for me. And I'm a psychologist. So if you're one of those individuals who thinks that there are certain people that have it all together, they're not. They have obstacles. They have problems. But the last thing that we need to do is look to these external cases and start trying to compare ourselves or even making blame cases for why we're doing what we're doing. We have to have extreme ownership. Oh, Jocko there. Jocko, if you're listening, I sure hope you are. I know you're not. Um, And then you never know. Maybe this will make it viral one day. And Jocko, listen, I love this idea of extreme ownership because when it comes down to the behaviors that we are engaging in, it's all on us. It is all within our control. And we have to be the one to take ownership of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Let's start off with this role or this concept, I should say, of the difficulty of change. I've said it already, but I'll say it again. Let's be clear. Behavior change is freaking hard. That is why there are so many health coaches and psychologists and counselors and accountability partners and physicians is because behavior change tends to be the most challenging component of overall health and well-being. And that's because behavior change takes energy. Behavior change takes work. Behavior change takes a level of self-awareness and then the ability to actually implement the things that you are hopefully committing to. We are up against a lot of challenges, both internal challenges and external challenges. When we think about internal challenges, we're talking about things like anxiety, stress, depression, unresolved trauma, distraction, mental health concerns. These are the things that are internally holding us back. It could be chronic pain. It could be something that is awry with our physiology or with our nervous system. The internal challenges are typically the most powerful components, but we also experience external challenges, relationships, work challenges, the supermarket commercials, you know, these palatable foods, like we are fighting against external challenges and internal biological challenges that can be very much linked with external challenges. But there's one thing when we look at the psychological literature that we know for sure is that we know that individuals, and again, research is clear, that individuals who have what is called an internal locus of control are typically the most successful when they are faced with adversity or challenges. Now, there is something called an internal locus of control, and there is something called an external locus of control. Let me explain those, and then I'll come back and repeat the thing that I just said in regards to who's going to be most successful. When people have an internal locus of control, This means that they have the core belief that when they are faced with a challenge, that for them, it is internally under their control that they can then implement action or change to be able to combat what is in front of them. So an internal locus of control says, I am taking ownership, the excuses, the blame is not going to be then projected or representative of something that is externally. It's me, the one who's under control, the one who has to face these challenges and overcome Mount Everest, the one who has to actually climb is me. The external focus or the external locus of control is when people tend to externalize the control of what's happening to them. What does that look like from a, from an example? Well, it could be, it was my boss's fault that I didn't get a promotion and that I didn't succeed, that I didn't hit my goals or maybe other workers, subordinates, uh, external locus of control looks and says that it is these things outside of my control that are causing the challenges. These are the things and not even causing the challenges, but are the catalyst it are these, it's these outside circumstances that dictate what happens in my life. It's almost like this predestination and I have no control. This is kind of all destiny and fate and there's nothing I can do about it. 
What research is clear is that the most successful change will occur in those who have an internal locus of control. So my challenge to you, number one, this is the first challenge of the day, is for you to ask yourself, what is my locus of control? Is it internal? I believe that the outcome is going to be representative of what I can do, or is the outcome going to be representative of things in my environment that I have no control over? You need to be a big boy or big girl and ask yourself this question, right? Um, and be honest with yourself. You know, there's been a lot of times in my own life who I've liked to project or place blame on things that are external and say, well, no, it wasn't me. Like uh, I did all I could. And then when I look back in retrospect, I say, wow, I was really displacing a lot of stuff there and I shouldn't have. So that's the first question you should ask yourself. And then what do we do then to help formulate a better internal locus of control? Because we know from research that these are the individuals who are going to be most successful. Well, the first thing is, is that we have to do a high level of self-exploration where we are honest with ourselves. Now, there are certain circumstances that are going to lead to challenges that are external, that are out of our control. You lose a job. You lose a spouse, you lose a family member, you have these things that are going to that occur externally, but what is within our internal locus of control? It is our response. I hate hearing about people saying something to the extent of they made me mad. They made me upset. He made me hit him. That's kind of an extreme example, but people get into fights. I mean, it can happen. These are things that I hear so often that are representative of this external locus of control. But indeed, when we think about our emotional response, when we think about our behavioral response, is that this has to be conceptualized as internally focused and within our control. So that's the first thing. The next thing I want to talk about are the stages of change. I love talking about the stages of change because they're extremely important for us when we do self-analysis or when we help clientele or whoever we're working with, with the analysis of where they are within kind of the progress or lack of progress, we should say, in behavioral change. Now, there is probably the most common theoretical model is called the trans-theoretical model of change. This was developed back in, I believe, 1970s, maybe like late 70s uh, by Prochaska and DiClemente, they published a paper on these five stages. And you could throw a sixth stage in there, but I'm going to talk predominantly about the model that they created that has been researched um, in, in the field of addictions, but also just in general health behavior change. And uh, the stages are pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. And then the sixth one that we could add would be a relapse, but we're not going to talk about relapse. Um, and the reason we aren't going to talk about it isn't just because, you know, it's a one that we don't want to talk about. Um, if it's something you don't want to talk about, then it's probably the thing that you should talk about. But for the sake of time, we're going to kind of start with something that hasn't been started before but we know should be, or maybe we don't know because we're pretty contemplative. We'll talk about that here in a second. So let's go through those stages. The first one is called pre-contemplation and pre-contemplation occurs when someone has no intention of changing. They have a lack of awareness that for them, there is no problem. Or if there is a problem, it's definitely not large enough to cause any concern for them. What is the goal of this stage? So if someone finds themselves in the pre-contemplative stage, again, no intention of changing, lack of awareness of this being a problem, then the goal if we're working with people or if we're trying to change ourselves or we're thinking about changing ourselves or we're doing that self-exploration right now, we need to be begin to build awareness of the problematic nature of the behavior, identifying whether or not or what the difficulty is that is a result of this behavior. This is one of the most challenging places to be. And that is because for us, 
if we're working through something on our own or trying or thinking about working through something on our own, or if it's with a client or you know a patient you're working with, it's the most challenging because of a general lack of awareness. Sometimes, and this is just true in life, it takes a swift, uh, a swift kick to the shins in order to come to the realization that what you're doing or what we're doing is negatively impacting you. It's those come to Jesus moments. It's those moments where the friend says, you know, you know, this is impacting your relationship. Uh, you, you know, get in trouble with the law because you're drinking and driving. Um, you miss a deadline because of whatever behavior that got in the way. Uh, this is, this is the moment. Um, another one that comes to mind that I saw frequently clinically is that, you know, you don't see a problem with your porn addiction. And it isn't until, you know, your spouse or significant other catches you um, or, you know, you, something happens to where like it affects the actual sexual relationship. Like these are all things that can occur. And it isn't until you have that swift kick to the shins that you realize that what you're doing is causing something deleterious. The next stage is contemplation. This is when now we actually have an awareness of the problem. We know it's a problem, but we don't really have a commitment to action. And the goal of this stage is that we have to focus on challenging the notion of change. What are the benefits or detriments? What are the pros and what are the cons? So an example of this that we see pretty often in literature that I think about is, you know, someone has noticed that drinking alcohol has resulted in them getting a DUI. And so they start to say, okay, well, let me make that pros cons list. So my pros are, is that, you know, drinking makes me social. Drinking is fun. Drinking is exciting. It allows me to escape my crappy reality. So there's a lot of pros in line, but man, there are some cons. There are problems that are still arising or they're getting worse after I sober up. It's like, yeah, the crappy reality goes away when I drink, but when I wake up, man, it's there and it's there even worse. Or maybe I got a DUI. That's a con. I don't like myself when I'm drunk. I turn into this nasty, aggressive individual. My relationships at work, they're really suffering. Yeah, the cons lists are starting to outweigh the pros. And now in this state of contemplation, we've kind of said the ambivalence may still be there. I may be teeter-tottering as to whether or not I should engage in this change of behavior, but man, I'm starting to see that there's a little bit more weight in the scales that are tipping towards cons as a pro as opposed to pros. That leads us then to the next stage of change, which is preparation. So now I have an awareness of the problem and I also have intent on changing my behavior in order to address the problem. The goal within this stage is it's time to make a commitment and to make a specific plan of action. So here's an example. I put it on paper and I share it with someone, whatever problem that I'm having. Research is clear that accountability is a key driver, especially social accountability is a key driver in behavioral change. If you share it with someone, you are more likely to commit to it and then follow through. Why is that? Well, you don't want to let yourself down, but also too, man, it is rough on your psyche to let others down. There's an immense amount of guilt and shame internalization that can come from impacting that relationship and not following through with commitments. One of the tools that I've used a lot with clientele, with patients is to try actually physically sign a contract. Yeah. Write it up. You don't need your <laughs> attorney to do it. You can do it yourself. It doesn't have to be overly formal, but formal enough to where you and the other social accountability partner can sign off of, on it as if it were a binding contract. You also, when you're in this preparation phase, you want to have a set plan that is actionable, not just, you know, stop drinking, stop eating junk food. It's not, it's not a really specific or actionable goal. Maybe it's actionable, but it's not very specific. It's not very measurable to an extent. I guess you could say, you know, a zero or one, yes or no. But what we want to make sure is that this is an actionably specific plan. Put it on your calendar, put it on your to-do list, make it something that you are coming back to or approaching every single day, maybe even multiple 
times a day. Within psychology, and behavior change, and then also through a process we call motivational interviewing, which is an amazing type of uh, action-based therapeutic approach, is we we create goals <clears throat> that are called SMART goals. SMART is an acronym, S-M-A-R-T, S being that we need the goal to be specific. There doesn't need to be ambiguity or vagueness in what your goal is. It needs to be as specific as you possibly can make it. We also want it to be measurable So it actually has to be quantifiable. Again, nothing that's esoteric, nothing that's ambiguous, but measurable. It also has to be actionable. What actions are you or can you engage in or implement in order to move towards change? It needs to be realistic. If you're someone who eats out every single week, Uh, multiple times a week, let's say you eat out twice a day for seven days a week and you say, I'm going to cut it down to zero times per week. Is it realistic for some? Maybe for most, no, I am completely sedentary. And now I'm going to make my goal to be, I'm going to work out for two hours a day, every single day of the week. Realistic, not likely. We'll talk about this idea of atomic habits or small change here in a minute. It also needs to be timely. Place a time frame around it. Place a time of when you are going to hit your goal or when is your a mark for trying to attain your goal. So that's a smart goal. The next phase is the action phase. This is when we are actively utilizing our tools to modify behavior. We are making change. We are in the process of true implementation. So that's the goal. We implement and we actively engage in behavior change. And here's the kicker. We modify accordingly. A rule that I have for everybody I meet is that you are allowed to make changes. Your plan does not need to be set in stone because sometimes when we provide these parameters, these barriers, and we add rigidity into behavioral change, we find that it is a lot easier for us to just fall off the bandwagon. That's a saying or not. I don't know what I mean by this is that if we are really rigid with our behaviors, if we say I am going to do the keto diet and I am going to never allow myself to eat a bowl of rice and come out of a state of ketosis, then what is likely to happen? Yeah, maybe you do keto for one or two weeks, but then when you finally break it and you eat that bowl of rice, well, you say, you know, whatever you know, to hell with it. Like I throw everything out. I don't need to do it anymore. I messed up. This happens so often with the psyche because a lot of us, we have this all or nothing mentality that we're either fully in, fully immersed, fully engaged, or we're not at all. And that is so incredibly problematic in cognitive behavioral therapy. We psychologists refer to this as a cognitive distortion. It's this again, all or nothing mentality and we have to get rid of it. So your plan does not need to be set in stone. All right. What is set in stone though, is your will to action. You need to be, have a set in stone, rigid will to action, not making excuses, not blaming, blaming, taking ownership and amending what needs to be amended because sometimes things need amendment. You have to do something different than what you have done before, period. Easy enough to say, more difficult to actually engage in. Here's an example of action. Again, this is where we're putting a plan into action. You're actively engaging in your plan. You've committed to stop drinking and now you're taking the steps to action. You've committed to changing your eating habits and now you're working on a plan. The next one is maintenance. Now you have habits formed. The old behaviors are replaced with the new ones and you are sustaining change. And the goal within this domain, which is maintenance, is to maintain this behavioral change as a part of your lifestyle. It is now in what we call psychological terms. It is now conditioned. It is a part of who you are. That is the whole goal. So we need to find what are the stepping stones to conditioning this behavior to where it is a part of your habits. It is a part of your lifestyle. So an example of this is that instead of waking up in the morning and maybe eating some donuts or, you know, Chick-fil-A biscuits and sipping some sugar coffee, you're hitting the gym. Like you actually have this as a part of your lifestyle. It has replaced an old behavior that was detrimental to you with a new one that is well more adaptive. 
Those are the stages of changes. And that leads us to this concept of a mindset of action. And if you have ever listened to the podcast before and you've listened to other podcasts about behavioral change, we know that mindset is one of the key components, if not the key component to behavioral change. And we're going to talk about two mindsets that you might be quite familiar with, but I want to reiterate the importance of these. And then I want you to do a level of assessment, just like we were doing with stages of change. Ask yourself where you are. And if you're finding yourself in the pre-contemplation contemplation stage, what are the steps that you're going to take to make true behavior change? Especially if you found that whatever is going on in life or whatever habit or behavior you're engaging in is causing you a lot of detriment. It's causing you or others a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. It's time to quit making excuses, own what you're doing and make some freaking change. Let's talk about mindset now and ask yourself, where are you? in regards to these two mindsets. And I don't mean to be too dichotomous here in terms of you have to be one or the other. I mean, it may be that you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset about different things. You'll see what I mean here in just a second. So without sounding too cliche, again, mindset is the key driver to success in establishing lifestyle changes and habits. The two types are fixed and growth. What is a fixed mindset? Ask yourself if any of these apply to you. These individuals are going to seek perfection. And what that means is they're also going to avoid failure, seeking to perfect certain things and avoiding the things that they perceive they may potentially fail at or the things that maybe they failed before. I've done this diet before I failed at it. And so therefore I'm going to avoid diets period because there is the possibility that I have to live through the pain of failing again. And it may even be that right now, the pain of failing that diet outweighs the pain of being overweight or having health problems. That's what a fixed mindset looks like. What is the pitfall? The pitfall of a fixed mindset is that we will focus on reproducing things that we know and things that are comfortable. We're going to avoid challenges because of that fear of failure. And therefore, there's no point in us putting forth any extra effort. When things get difficult for the fixed mindset, it's time to give up. They don't see the obstacle as something to overcome, to make them a better individual, to help them with their overall mental and physical wellness love Ryan Holiday and the concept in stoicism that the obstacle is the way. For someone with a fixed mindset, they don't see the obstacle as the way. It is the barrier and it is now time for them to turn around instead of heading towards the obstacle and viewing it with more of a growth mindset. They turn around and they avoid it. When things get difficult, they turn around and they give up. People with a fixed mindset are really defensive when they receive feedback, especially when it's regarding their health, behavior change, success, or maybe more so their lack of success. And one thing that happens with people with a fixed mindset is that they're threatened by the success of others. When they see others succeed, especially in something that they have a significantly difficult time with, it threatens them. They become defensive. They may even become upset, angry, or aggressive. But in my opinion, the biggest pitfall of all of someone who has a fixed mindset is the belief that strengths are innate gifts that cannot be developed. I'll repeat that again. The biggest pitfall for a fixed mindset is the belief that strengths are innate gifts that cannot be developed. And I think that that in and of itself shows that if we don't have something that we identify as a strength, maybe we identify it as a weakness We avoid ever trying to work on it and to make it a strength because it's just a gift. It's innately a part of us. And I hope you know that that is as false as it gets. But let's talk about how you know it's as false as it gets. This is because we have to take on a growth mindset. These are people who are going to seek to learn, to grow, and to develop. And a key characteristic of these individuals is a focus on improving how we do things, making our weaknesses 
our greatest strengths. Ben Pakolsky, a good friend of mine, talked about this before, and I love what he has to say about this. He works way harder on his weaknesses than on his strengths because he wants to make his weaknesses his greatest strengths. Jocko Willink is another guy that I've already talked about on this podcast, but when he embraces challenge, which he does, he embraces challenge, his response when he's encountered with something that appears to be a barrier, that appears to be a blockade, is he says, good. He just says, good. And that is his mindset. Because what that means is that challenge that is in front of you is something that you can embrace as a growth edge. It's a mechanism for helping you to develop something that may be difficult for you to develop, but will only reap positive benefits in the end. So your company didn't get backed backed by venture capital. Well, good. You remain an owner of a large percentage of the company that you may have lost out on. And you have more direction or the ability to dictate where the company is going as opposed to if you didn't. Another one, you, uh, let's see, I was trying to think of, of a good one. Uh, this is a, this is one that Jocko has said before and I love it. You didn't pass your driver's test. And this would be like, you know, to a 16 year old adolescent. Good. Because I'd rather you fail in front of this DU, uh, the, what is it called? The, um, oh geez. When you go to the, uh, place, I was, I was almost said DUI. So the, the, oh geez, what, what do they do? The driver's instruction. I sound like a crazy man. I can't even think of, you know, what it's, what it's called now. Um, you're taking the driver's side. So rather you fail in front of that individual than fail in front of a cop or fail, you know, in front of, uh, fail by doing something that could have been caught earlier, but now causes you to take the life of a person uh, or individuals in the car next to you because you wrecked into them, whatever it may be. The idea behind Jocko's good is saying that we can take what's in front of us and not just celebrate it and be so happy for it, but say good because there is something that is going to challenge us to mold our behavior and overcome this. And on the other side of this, we are going to be individuals who are more, um, who, who are developing more fortitude and strength. Every opportunity, good or bad, is a mechanism for learning and growing. We also have to make sure when we have a growth mindset that we are persisting, even when things are difficult. The person with the growth mindset learns and responds positively to criticism. They find lessons in others' success. They surround themselves with others who have put in the time and succeeded and they learn. A growth mindset is freedom and a fixed mindset is limiting. Last thing before I get into actionable steps is to talk about someone named Aaliyah Crum. She was on Dr. Andrew Huberman's podcast. She is a researcher and psychologist out of Stanford. And she talks about this amazing growth mindset when we talk about adversity and stress. And obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, here on the Hanu Health Podcast, we think a lot about the benefits uh, of, of stress. And we think about stress as something that we encounter as inherently good, but can be, of course, bad. We know that when we take time, and this is the research that comes out of Aaliyah Crum's lab in Stanford, is that when we take the time to think about the benefits of stress, when we're encountering stressors, when we're encountering anxiety, this results in stress being more beneficial. And guess what? The opposite is true as well. When we think about the detriments, when we think about the blockades, when we think about the holdbacks of stress, then this will result in stress being more detrimental. Simply put, our mindset, our thought about adversity, our thought about challenges, our thought about obstacles, the way we view and perceive and encounter and interact with all of those variables is going to dictate the outcome. Are we going to choose to interact it by seeing the benefits of the challenges in front of us from a behavioral change perspective, or are we going to look at the blockades, the barriers, and the problems that can persist that is up to us. So one thing more, I said I was going to end it, but I got one more thing is as we transition, um, is to think about how do we transition from a fixed to a growth mindset? We have to have a high level of self-awareness. And here's the thing you have to acknowledge 
when you have a fixed mindset. You are not perfect. And I've already mentioned that, but you are not perfect. And we all have phases of fixed mindsets. You're not doing yourself any favors by lying to yourself and convincing yourself you are something that you're not. Your actions are a direct result of your beliefs and mindset. So if you see that you are falling short of your behavioral goals, then you need to check your mindset. All right, action steps. What are the practical tools? What are the things that we can put into our toolbox so that we can ensure a greater potential for success? We're still going to have barriers. We're going to have blockades. Things are going to cause us problems at times, but we can arm ourselves with certain practical tools for behavioral change. And let me uh, get this sip of water because I'm a little parched today. Ah, Good electrolytes too. That's my uh, plug for element, not sponsored of the, the, not sponsoring the episode or anything or the podcast, but good stuff. Okay. I'm going to give you a set of rules now for action steps. Number one, atomic habits and one behavioral change at a time. So James Clear wrote an amazing book about atomic habits. If you think about what atomic means, we're talking about atom, small. Think about how small an atom is. If you take yourself back to, what is that? Like maybe ninth grade, uh, chemistry or biology. I I don't even remember which, uh, when we learned about atoms probably earlier than that, maybe middle school, but we know that these are the smallest forms of matter are atoms. And the thing about atoms is that they are very tiny. And the thing about habits is that they should start off at least as tiny because we know that these small little habitual change can result in a larger, greater outcome sometimes than trying to engage in something that is far too unrealistic or far too large. So the thing that I would challenge you is instead of trying to wipe the slate clean and start over with every single thing that you do in your life, just, just pick one small change. Because if you try and make unrealistic changes, you are destined to fail. Start small, make sure that you are changing things that matter. An example here is that again, if you try to go from sedentary to working out every day for two hours, destined to fail, a better replacement would be commit to working out two times a week for 15 minutes or go for, you know, one 10 minute walk three out of seven days of the week. These are changes that are more realistic and are more atomic and can be easily converted, or I should say more easily converted into habits, small wins. And this is a great thing to remember. Small wins will enhance motivation and allow for greater chances of success when our goals become more challenging as we broaden, as we strengthen our goals and they become more challenging because we're having to put a lot of more time, energy, effort, and so forth. The smaller wins that you've already had are things that we can look back on in retrospect and say, well, look, I've done this before. Maybe the magnitude's a little bit greater now because we always want to grow and progress, but I have the ability to look back and say that I got some check marks on the page of my to-do list. This is one of the things that I do every morning uh, with making my bed and with 100 push-ups. I make my bed every single morning because if I look back at the end of the day, I want to say that I at least accomplished one thing. No matter what happened, I got one thing done. I do 100 push-ups regardless of whether or not I'm going to the gym that morning, which I'm normally going to the gym that morning, because if something blockades my way and I can't make it to the gym for whatever reason, I can look back at the end of the day and said, I still worked out, still did a hundred pushups. That's one thing that you can do. You don't have to use my examples um, and implement those into your life, but those are my examples. One thing too about small habit changes is I do understand and realize they're not for everyone. Some people work really well under pressure and they like to have high goals. This is why you need to know thyself. But the general rule of thumb is that engaging in small atomic habits or creating small atomic habits is going to be a great place to start and will reap most people a lot of benefit. Make your goals smart. I've already mentioned that. Rule number two, always link goals and behavioral change with your values and with your aspirations. If they are not linked to your values, if they're not linked to your aspirations, they will quickly die off. We know that when goals are linked to values, 
they will be leaned and they will be linked, I should say, to meaning and purpose. And when they're linked to meaning and purpose, we know that this is going to significantly increase the chances that you'll follow through. Far too often, our goals are linked to idealism. Excuse me, let me pronounce that correctly. Idealism. And they're linked to others who I think the ideal self should be. It's, you know, the so-and-so that I heard that's an influencer. Um, They do all these things. So therefore, I need to have goals to become like them. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe we have to take a deep, deep exploration into our sense of meaning and value and purpose and our aspirations and then say, is this in line? Is this congruent? Does this mesh? So stop living a life of idealism. Stop living a life of trying to please others with your goals. This needs to be tied to your value, to your aspirations, to your meaning, to your purpose. Rule number three, combine behaviors with things that you always do. And I put always in all caps, make it stupid simple. Michael Scott, right? Keep it simple, stupid. I love that concept when it comes to behavioral change. If you combine or link behaviors with things that you always do, if you don't always, at least initially, this is what I should say, when you're trying to first get into the action phase action phase of behavior change, is that you link it to things that you always do. If you don't meditate for 30 minutes, then trying to say, I'm going from nothing to cold turkey, I'm sorry, nothing, which would be like cold turkey, uh, to 30 minutes of meditation every single day, you're probably going to fail. There is a reason why Calm and Headspace and some other uh, programs, while they're amazing programs, have a high churn or attrition rate is because a lot of people go from nothing to trying to do a bunch and then it doesn't work for them. And there's other reasons too, depending on the practice, but that's one major one. So what's something that you can do? If you've never done breath work before, try to link it with something that you always do. Well, you probably either daily or maybe every other day, or if you're you know a weirdo, maybe once or twice a week, you get in the shower and you shower off. What do you do during that time? Well, maybe you think, maybe you zone out, or maybe you can try to do some breath work and link it with something that you always do. Maybe you always brush your teeth every day or you do it twice a day, hopefully. Um, at least once a day. I'm not going to make a judgment, but brushing teeth is probably a pretty good thing. I don't know. We're going to get some research that says otherwise knowing us. Why don't we do some nasal breathing while brushing our teeth? Again, nothing. it doesn't have to be anything formal, but it's linked to something that you always do. What else are you going to do? Maybe think, yeah, that's fine. But you can also link it with something that you're trying to change. Maybe you're adding breath work in great to do while you're brushing your teeth. Another example, a down regulation of your nervous system between in between sets while you're working out. A lot of people are always working out and they get on their phone in between sets. Why don't you start linking it with things that you're trying to implement? You're trying to teach autonomic control of your nervous system. Well, do it during a space and time that's always there like in between a working set during a workout. Next thing would be like gratitude. It's something that I like to both write down so that I have that practice, but also share and also think about. Gratitude also starts in the mind. It starts in the heart. Why not do it when you're doing something that you always do? Going back to the shower, maybe you're sitting on the toilet and you go to the toilet every day. Maybe that's an opportune time for you to condition and link a behavior or something that you aspire to do with something that you always do. Rule number four, establish a reward system. First things first, there's no need to indulge in something that could cause a relapse. So if you have like 10 days of sobriety, like if that's your goal, um, don't say, oh, I've got 10 days of sobriety. So the way I reward myself is with a drink. Okay, no, but we do want to give ourselves some level of reward for progress. We know from research that this can be very helpful to an extent. You have to use an abundance of caution. An example is, you know, I met my goal of no junk food for this entire week. This sounds like me. I want to reward myself with something that's going to reinforce that behavior. Like maybe I go out to the movies or my wife and I go out on a date and it's contingent again on me making that goal. Something that's simple doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It may not even have to cost any money, but it's something that we can do to reward ourselves and condition that behavioral response. Rule number five, final rule, and it's not limited to these rules. These are just ones I created for today's podcast. (laughs) Rule number five is accountability. 
The research demonstrates that social accountability enhances the chances for success and behavioral change, period. Some studies actually even say that social accountability increases success up to 42%. So people who have social accountability, we have a buddy that's helping us or maybe even doing the job with us or doing the goal with us, this increases the chances of success by 42%. Like that's a pretty good increase in chances of success. We already know that behavior change is hard. It's difficult. Why go on that journey alone? Like maybe you're a good lone wolf and that's effective for you. But for a lot of people, even those who think they're lone wolves do better when they have a level of social accountability. So what's the action step here? Find a buddy and get going. Like you can either tell a buddy about it and make the contract like we talked about earlier, or even better, my recommendation as a psychologist, have them join in with you. As long as the goal is realistic for them, it's smart for them, and it's tied with their value and with their aspirations and will give them a sense of meaning and purpose, then have them join in with you. If you can do that, if it's like a family member or even just like a buddy of yours, a coworker, whoever it may be, I think that there's a lot of strength and a lot of power in that level of social accountability. And the research is pretty clear on that. So that's it. Those are the action steps. <clears throat> I know that was a bit lengthy on behavior change, but I think again, education without action is pretty meaningless. And so we all know that we should be doing certain things, but actually putting them into action implementing something different is so freaking hard. You know, there's a lot more to cover within this domain, but I think it's a really good place to start. So if you're finding yourself kind of at this place of pre-contemplation or contemplation, or even just kind of like at the fork in the road, and it's, you know, the fork is either you continue doing what you're doing or you start making change. You need to assess the value of staying where you are or the value of change. What I have found for the most part, and this comes as a scientist, as a clinician, and as, as someone who just loves talking and researching and, and implementing behavior change, if you will, is that I have found that when you're at that fork in the road and it's either the opportunity to continue what you're doing or make a change. If you're at the fork in the road and you've gotten to that place, it's probably time to take the path of change, to take the path of action. And the biggest barrier that we're going to have that's going to keep us doing the same thing is that we're going to make excuses. We're going to externalize. We're going to tell ourselves that we don't have the ability to do it. I can't. Um, I, I don't have the strength. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. You're going to make excuses until the day you die. That's human nature is for us to make excuses. But what we know is that this is all within your control. You have the ability to direct your pathway when it comes to behavior change. And it is time now for you to make the conscious decision especially if you've identified that something is quite problematic for you. It is causing you pain. It is resulting in continued anxiety, stress, depression, unresolved trauma, whatever it may be, uh, you know, chronic pain, physiological issues like diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Like we can make all the excuses in the world, but what we have to do, it is imperative for us to do is to make the change It's to stop or lay down the excuses, stop blaming others, take extreme ownership of our actions. Easier said than done, but we can all do it. You have the power and the ability to do it. And so that's my challenge to you. Hope this has been helpful. And I hope that if you're on that journey for making changes to your health, both physical, mental, spiritual, relational, whatever aspect, I hope that this gives you a little bit more of a roadmap for how you can make mindset changes to implement behavioral changes. So I hope again that uh, you took something practical from this and something actionable. That's going to be it for us today. Again, remember hanuhealth.com pod 40, use that code. That'll get you the amazing uh, coupon uh, or 40, I should say the coupon for the 40% off. And, uh, and a lot of what we're talking about today is going to be implemented and built into the app. Um, I've just had a lot of convictions around behavior change and how we can put this 
into an application to help a lot of people, including myself, because I'm fallible. I'm a psychologist. I have all the head knowledge in the world and I I got a lot to learn, but I have a lot of head knowledge compared to the average individual on behavioral change. And guess what? I still find it challenging. Am I going to use it as an excuse just because I'm human? No, no. I'm not going to use fallibility as an excuse. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm self-aware that it happens, but now it's time for me to uh, shut up and get going. Uh, because when it comes down to it, like the person who's going to make the behavioral change for me is not going to be anyone else. Um, at the end of the day, I'm the one who's going to do it. I got to pull the trigger. And if I don't pull the trigger, that's on me. It's, 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 it's on me. And I don't want to look back in life and regret that I didn't do something earlier or that I made excuses that I whined about it. I just want to get going and I want to do it. And I've got a lot of growth in this, in this aspect. There are so many things that I continue to find myself fixed about in regards to mindset. And that's on me. Uh, and now it's time for me to make a change. It's time for you to make a change. It's time for all of us to get off of our high horse, to stop blaming others and to say, I'm taking ownership. I'm going for it. All right, everybody have a wonderful week. Um, we love you all. We appreciate kind of your willingness to sit through and listen to me and listening and listen to us and to, uh, you know, just place your time, uh, your money and your effort into uh, following Hanu. So we're really grateful, really blessed for that. You all have a wonderful week and we'll see you next Friday. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.